Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't joined our wonderful marketing transformation community yet, go to innovabiz.co and collect your free gift as well. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. Where I always like to start with folks is understanding your customer segments. Why is that important? Because your different customer segments will value your product differently because they have different drivers of value that they rank in different orders. Your entire customer potential prospect market is not homogenous. And so it helps to really focus on understanding what are the identifiable customer segments that you have in your market so that you can understand how each of those groups will value your product differently. Also, each of those segments will have different competitive alternatives that they're using. Welcome back. I hope you've had an awesome week so far. If you haven't listened yet to my recent conversations with the CEO of the Evolved Group, Gareth Chandler, and with the founder of Rational Games, Dr. Mark Young, then do go check them out. But stay here before you do that and listen to today's conversation. I'm really excited today to have on the Innova Buzz podcast as my guest, Dan Belkowski. He's the Principal Consultant for Product Tranquility based in Austin, Texas. He focuses on helping high-volume B2B SaaS CEOs define pricing and packaging for new products. Over his career, he's worked in both consumer and B2B companies across consumer internet, mobile, IT software, and test and measurement hardware and software, in addition to company sizes ranging from startups to publicly traded multinational enterprises. He also teaches product strategy for the Kellogg Executive Education Program online. In our conversation today, Dan talked to me about how defining pricing and packaging starts with understanding our customer segments and the problems we solve for them. We talked about differentiating customer segments by buying behavior and buying motivation. And we discussed the emotional forces driving the buying decision. Without further ado, then, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from Dan Belkowski. Hi, I'm your host, Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm really excited to welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast today from Austin, Texas in the USA, Dan Belkowski, who's from Product Tranquility, and he helps high-volume B2B SaaS companies define their pricing and packaging for new products. Welcome to the Innova Buzz podcast, Dan. It's a great privilege to have you as my guest. Likewise, Jürgen. Thank you for having me. I'm excited for our conversation. 
Now, you've, you've got an interesting background where you've worked in companies in, in a corporate career, essentially, on pricing and packaging in larger companies. And you went off on your own two years ago, which was an interesting choice and timing. <laughs> We're right at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. And yeah, and bringing your experience to small business now and um, companies well, actually, high-volume companies, not necessarily small business, but companies that do need help with pricing and packaging. And I see all kinds of um, interesting decisions there. So I'm really curious to learn how you approach all that and um, how you help people get it right. But before we start talking about all things pricing, packaging, and, and the value products bring, what's the impact you're having in the world, Dan? Well, I've named my company Product Tranquility. That was intentional. So I'm trying to bring a little bit more tr tranquility into the world. That'd be goal number one. Goal number two, trying to push some of this information out to the masses so that pricing doesn't become as much of, doesn't stay as much of a black box as it currently is for most folks. Mm. That's great. And the, I guess one of the things, I mean, I always wondered because I was, during my corporate career, I was in marketing for many years, but started out in the product development realm and always wondered how people priced. And in the corporate world where I was, a lot of the times it was, what's our cost? What's our desired profit margin? And okay, that'll do. Like cost is X, X plus percentage, and that's the price. And there was and I always wondered, well, how do you work out whether you're actually covering your costs, whether you're actually ending up with a product that's profitable, whether the whole business is being profitable, whether you're um, pricing right for the customer in the marketplace, whether your competition is cheaper or more expensive. And indeed, the whole question of value, you know, does, does it represent the value to the customer? So what are what are some of the common mistakes you see that, people make when they have a new product and they say, okay, we're going to price it at X? I think the most important thing, the thing I see most often is when it comes to SaaS pricing, and that's what I focus on is, is B2B SaaS products primarily, mm -hmm. most executives think that what you charge will determine your success. In fact, who and how you charge determines your success. So most folks, when I come into a room, are very focused on what I'd call the price level. Should this be $20 per user per month, so it should be $40 per user per month. And while important, it's not the most important thing. It's more important to understand which customers you're serving and your overall, what we call pricing packaging model that allows you to match the value you're delivering with your capability to get fair value from that transaction. Hmm. Yeah, you mentioned a whole bunch of things there that I think is well worth digging into. And the first one for me, well, you closed off with fair value, which I think is a, is a big one. But I wanted to start with understanding the customer, who you're serving. And, and obviously that then leads into what value does your SaaS so software as a service bring to that customer. So tell us a little bit more. How do you start off your process of determining pricing for a new product with that uh, understanding the customer and and what problem it is that 
this product is solving for them. Yeah, absolutely. Pricing can be a challenging concept because you're in a dynamic system. You mentioned some of these things before, are we providing value to the customers? What are competitors doing? Are we building a sustainable, profitable business over time? Where I always like to start with folks is understanding your customer segments. Why is that important? Because your different customer segments will value your product differently because they have different drivers of value that they rank in different orders. Your entire customer potential prospect market is not homogenous. And so it helps to really focus on understanding what are the identifiable customer segments that you have in your market so that you can understand how each of those groups will value your product differently. Also, each of those segments will have different competitive alternatives that they're using. And when I say competitive alternatives, that's not just your direct competition, which is what most people think of. I use a very, what's called jobs to be done approach, where most B2B SaaS companies may be competing with other direct startups or established businesses, but a lot of them may also be, you may be competing against spreadsheets and email. And each of those customer segments may have different alternatives that they're using to get the job done today. And so it's helpful to understand that because what you're really trying to understand is what is the differentiated value that you bring to the market when it comes to a pricing decision. So you can think of those first three items, your customer segments that are available to you, the value you provide to each of those and competitive alternatives as research inputs into the pricing strategy process. And the pricing strategy process is really a set of decisions that you're going to make given the potential target customer that you're trying to serve the competitive alternatives that's relevant to them, your differentiated value proposition to that customer segment. Now you can have a conversation around the price level, the packaging decisions that are all encompassed in having a successful monetization model. Hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a lot in that to unpack, obviously. One of the things it raised for me was this idea I mean, a lot of software products that I encounter as a potential customer and I look at their pricing and they've always, you know, this is the classic thing and I, I wonder how, whether they're actually having having those conversations or those strategic uh, decision process internally that, that you described or whether it's just this is the way it's done. So there's the pricing page will have three three levels and uh, sometimes it's well it's kind of like the good better best process uh, pro, uh, principle but it might be you know, silver gold and platinum you know they might have fancy terms like that and, and and i guess that's part of the packaging which we'll come to later they don't and they have different features in order to justify different prices but most of the time it just doesn't make sense to me so is do you think that people are actually putting thought into building those packages given what you've said about understanding and segmenting the customers or is it just um, kind of it's a default we'll, we'll offer three things because some people will pay more some people will pay less so we'll offer three things and throw in some bells and whistles in each of the higher packages good better best is the most common approach in the SaaS world I would agree with your sentiment that 
most of those strategic conversations I don't believe are happening, given the conversations that I'm usually involved in. When I talk to leaders and I talk about the concept of customer segmentation, I'm often met with a reaction of, well, our product is for everyone. That is rarely ever true. Hmm. And it's important, depending upon obviously the stage of your business to not compare, you know, if you're a small startup, don't compare yourself to what Google or Amazon or LinkedIn or whoever it might be is doing because they're at a different stage of growth. And at that point, they have, they have products for everyone, but they've grown to that point. That's not where mm -hmm. they started. The offer or bundle configurations, what I would term the sort of good, better, best that you've brought up is directly, directly falls out of your understanding of the customer segments you're going to serve. Now it's one, I will say most folks don't put near enough emphasis on the research process to come up with good pricing. There's some numbers that I've seen that most executives for their, especially if you're starting a startup, puts somewhere on the order of, you know, a meeting, a 48 hour meeting into their uh, initial uh, pricing and packaging. And it's not until you know, they grow significantly larger or adding second product or going into a new market or potentially acquiring some other companies, they really start taking a more rigorous approach. But when you understand those segments at a very crisp level, the packages that you offer fall out directly from that. Hmm. Yeah, so so how do you approach that? You, do you approach it from the point of view of what are the needs of each um, of people in each specific segment and how how does that make sense from an overall perspective in terms of several different packages? So there's two general ways to approach segmenting your customers. One is what you call an a priori approach or before, it's a fancy Latin term, we'll just call that before versus a post hoc approach, which we use after. So a priori is, are there existing observable characteristics of the market that already divide the market in, in ways that are understood? So this could be by industry vertical. Is it financial services versus insurance versus retail versus hospitality? Is it a company size, SMB, mid-market enterprise companies? Those are interesting places to start, but they don't really get at differentiating characteristics of why customers buy. So the, the post hoc approach goes at it the other direction. It starts not with who customers are, but what customers want. And what you're doing there is what I would term a value-based segmentation approach. And the way I look at that is through the framework called Jobs to be Done. Jobs to be Done was created by over, over many decades, uh, all the way from uh, Ted Levitt at Harvard Business School to Peter Drucker to Clayton Christensen, also at uh, Harvard Business School. He was the creator of disruption theory and the author of Innovator's Dilemma. But... What really matters from a jobs to be done lens is what is the context the customer is in? What are they trying to achieve? What barriers are in their way? And what is the outcome that is the result that they're trying to get to? And when we look at the overall market from the outcomes lens, that really helps give us a really good idea of 
why particular customer segments buy or bring products into their lives and others make other decisions. Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting approach. And I think the, the outcome, uh, understanding the outcome that each customer segment desires is, can be really valuable. The one question it does raise, though, I mean, you gave the example before of some people are still using spreadsheets and I was always, I would always say when we were talking about competition um, in pricing discussions way back in the corporate world, I said, well, there's, you know, one of the things that we forget about competition is there's other companies that do similar things to us and have similar products. That's competition. There's different ways of achieving the outcome. That's competition. There's also make no decision. The potential customer says, I'm not going to decide. I'm going to procrastinate over this decision to the point where at some, at some stage it becomes irrelevant, the problem goes away or it's not, it's no longer, we're no longer in that space, whatever it might be. So the idea of no decision being competition, I think is important as well. Now, it doesn't lead to the same outcome, but how do you bring that into the analysis? So jobs to be done, the overall framework gives us a way to think about this. So what jobs theory talks to us about is, you know, customers are, are hiring a product to do a job. And that job can be a functional job. So the, it allows me to achieve some cost reduction, some time savings. That would be a functional type job. It could be an emotional job. This allows me to feel some sense of pride or reduce anxiety or a sense of uncertainty. Or it could be a social job. This job allows me to give back to some community in a way. The other lens that Jobs to be Done gives us is there's these emotional forces acting on the decision maker when they're going to bring a new product into their lives. There's two forces that are pulling them to, to make a decision and there's forces pulling them back. So the forces that are pulling them forward are frustration with the status quo. There's some reason the existing system isn't working as well as it could be, as well as a pull of a, of a new, better future, the solution that you know, is out in the market, whether it's yours or your direct competitions, as well as there's forces keeping people in place. So there's anxiety about will this solution actually do what it's going to say it's going to do is my potential job at risk and these are emotional levers that we can think about in order to move customers forward in order to make progress and this is where concepts you may have heard this before around requires you your product to be 10x better than what exists in order to customers to move forward because you need to overcome some of that inertia from the status quo. The other emotional driver I neglected to mention was there is just a comfort. The devil I know versus the devil I don't know. I know where all the problems are now, but if I bring a new solution in, and not to say anything about the trustworthiness of the vendor, but if they don't have full visibility into all the ways that my company might work differently or 
other systems or processes that we have in place. And so there's it's like in that situation, I'm pulled to stay with the status quo because it, there's uncertainty of, okay, will this thing actually work or not? Hmm. Yeah, that's a great lens to look at it from. And I think that's something that most people really overlook in in their decisions around sales, around marketing, around pricing and packaging. One of the other things in, you talked about the comfort level as, as something that um, favors the status quo. And one of the things with SaaS products is usually if you either change to a different one or you implement one in place of let's say excel spreadsheets or whatever documentation is in place right now there's always a learning curve at the start of that journey which is another kind of oh that's going to stretch me out of my comfort zone right and and also if you're in a larger organization i've got to convince everybody that they need to learn to use this new bit of software which certainly <laughs> I've experienced that quite a lot in, in the corporate world where you had large teams having to switch to a, a certain tool that somebody had decided to bring in and then there was this huge resistance internally to implement it. So sometimes that impacts the decision before the decision's made. Absolutely. And I think this ties back to what you said before. I don't remember the statistic off the top of my head, but I was reading a couple of weeks ago something in the order of 50% of purchase decisions are no decision. If you go look in, in a B2B sales process, right? It's like, why did we win? No decision was made. I think it has a lot to do with exactly what you're talking about because a switch to any solution, no matter how good it is, incurs you know, these emotional costs as well as fixed costs, whereas training, onboarding, systems integration, we have to have a professional services team come in. You know, this thing won't actually be operational for you know, six to 12 months, but someone has to manage that process. That costs uh, both mm -hmm. time and, and money. So those are relevant to any sort of change that the organization decides to make and bring a new product in. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to packaging. So, I mean, pricing and packaging are clearly very closely related, but in terms of SaaS products, what specifically do you mean by packaging, and then what why is that important? Because we're it's not a good question. About, we're not talking about a box, right? A physical package. <laughs> no, no. So part of the problem with software is that its benefit and problem is it's infinitely malleable. So you have the ability to do almost anything in software. It's magical in that but it can also become overwhelming. And so it's incumbent upon managers to make intelligent decisions that help their go-to-market motion be as efficient as possible. And good packaging decisions are, are, are key to that. So really when I think of packaging, it's four separate components. There's what is the price metric. So this is the unit of value that I charge customers for. So is that per seat? per gigabyte of data transferred, per API call. There's the overall pricing model, otherwise called a monetization model or a business model. So this could be subscription, perpetual license, pay-as-you-go. There's your offer configurations or bundles. So this is what I would 
ascribe to the, the good, better, best packaging. So hmm. the idea here is there's a cost to educating your market about everything that your product does. And so how can you make that approachable, consumable, efficient, both for the customer as well as your sales team, where the proper bundle setup can allow customers to self-select, can allow salespeople to be effective in routing customers to the set of capabilities that is best for them. And then finally would be the idea of a price fence. A price fence is I'm potentially charging different customers different prices for the same capability based upon something like their identity, the time, the volume. You experience this potentially when you go to the movies. Uh, the Sunday matinee price is different than the Friday evening price to go see the same movie. You're going to see the same movie, but the cinema is going to charge you a different price based upon, a, in that case, a time differentiation. You see it as well where maybe there's a senior discount or a student discount or a veteran's discount. Or what's most common in a B2B SaaS world is the concept of volume. So the more, if I'm buying a piece of software and I buy 10 seats, I'm very unlikely in that pricing model to be charged the same for a thousand seats. And, but mm -hmm. ultimately the, the capabilities I'm, I'm receiving are the same. It's just at, at a different scale. So those are the four elements, the price metric, the pricing model, the offer configurations or bundles and the price fences that go into packaging and when I was talking before about, you know, it's much more important who and how you charge than what you charge. Most folks are purely focused on the price level and they ignore, okay, who are we actually trying to sell this to, which goes in our customer segmentation hmm. and then the, the packaging that I just mentioned. And those have outsized impacts on your overall monetization strategy than the exact number that you ascribe to whatever you know, final bundles or packages you end up coming up with. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really comprehensive breakdown. And, and certainly, I mean, I think there's a lot of sense in that fencing, as you call it, the price fence, particularly for software as a service where I could imagine if, if I'm a business running software as a service and I bring on a customer that, wants a thousand seats in that software provided i've got the bandwidth for the software and the storage capacity to handle a thousand which i imagine I, i'd want to have if i had a software as a service product then that the value of that customer to me is much higher than another customer that comes in and buys five seats so obviously I would price that, make that much more attractive for them. So it's not a thousand times a single subscription. Yeah, there's there's a couple of things that go into that. So, you know, for a lot of these type of sales, it's not necessarily that your customer acquisition costs, so all the sales and marketing expense that you're going to spend to acquire a company is going to scale linearly mm. or absolutely directly with the size of that they of product that they buy. There will be some variation, but also if you think about cost of training, onboarding, support. So for a company who is looking at a, a tiered volume structure where you know the price per unit decreases as customers buy more and more, it actually makes sense from a profit perspective because they've already 
they're already going through the sales. They're already, they've already had to go and put the marketing out there. And so it just makes sense where they're not, they don't need to eke every, the same amount of uh, dollar per unit, uh, you know, on the thousandth unit that they sell as they did on the first. Hmm. Yeah. And also there's, there's lots of advantages of scale in that, particularly in, in areas like onboarding, um, because it's like, particularly if it's an onboarding that um, involves webinars, training uh, across the internet that can be done in group training sessions then, which is, again, not a linear scale up. And I think this was an interesting thing when, when folks switched to COVID in that many ways they people found virtual could be just as valuable. So this goes, I think, back to something you mentioned earlier, which is a lot of companies in your corporate experience start with what we call a, a cost-based pricing model. So mm -hmm. when I think about pricing at a, at a 10,000 foot view, there's really sort of three philosophical orientations that companies can have. Cost-based pricing, competitor-based pricing, and customer value-based pricing, otherwise called value-based pricing. But we call those the three C's. If you call it, you call it just value-based pricing, it doesn't have the marketing ring. <laughs> but the problem with cost-based pricing, you were mentioning this, you know, well, it's actually cheaper for the company to do the training virtually or onboarding virtually. At the end of the day, it's somewhat irrelevant to the end customer because the customer should just mm -hmm. care. Did I get what I, did I get what I paid for? Did I get the yeah. value? And this is where I sort of look at those three tiers, cost-based, competitor-based, value-based as rungs of a ladder that companies should, you know, aspire to reach sort of the next rung as they go in their pricing journey. But you're absolutely right. Most companies start at a cost-based model where my cost of goods sold costs X. I want some margin, so I'm going to charge the market for X. But customers really don't care what it costs you to make. That's not really relevant to them. You know, right. I've never asked a company whose software I've bought how many engineering hours it took to build that software because yeah. I don't really care as, a, as, a, as the purchaser. And so I think that's the fundamental mistake that companies make when they use a cost-based model. Yeah, that's right. It's the pricing negotiations. Customers generally don't ask what's your profit margin on that. <laughs> can, can you shave that a bit for us? <laughs> they might ask, you know, can we get a better price? But that's, you know, as you say, they don't really care about what your costs are. Of course, you should care. Um, I, I think if we look at value-based pricing on its own, then you still have to come back and say, well, is this profitable? Can I sustain this? Is, does it make sense? Or is there another product that, that's going to earn me more money and make me more successful in the business? So obviously, the two things have to be looked at really in context. You absolutely need all three. And I think it's a mistake when folks talk about value-based pricing where they say, well, you shouldn't worry about your competitors or your costs. I think you absolutely have to. You have to care about your costs because if you don't, you're going to potentially run out of money and mm. be unable to serve your, your market. If you don't focus, if you don't understand what your competitors are charging or the value that they provide, you're not going to be inheriting the same reality that your customers are inheriting. So you have mm. to be aware of those things. You have to, they're part of the calculus. But what both of those miss is end value to the customer 
So when I think about it, it's, yes, you need to consider all three, but let's consider value to the customer as the primary metric that we're going to be focused on. Hmm. Yeah, great. That's and, and you've really outlined it exceptionally well for us. I uh, appreciate that. Um, yeah, I'm just looking at the clock, so I think it might be a good point now to move on to the buzz, which is our innovation round. It's the same five questions I ask of every guest. And the idea is that you'll give us some tips that will inspire the listener to go and do something awesome today. You all set? I'm excited. Let's do it. Yeah. What's the number one thing anyone needs to do to be more innovative? It's a very interesting question. My definition of innovation is breaking a previous constraint. So I think deeply understanding the constraints that exist in your company or industry and those constraints your customers are facing is a good place to start. Because if you don't know what those constraints are, it's very mm. hard to understand what you need to put pressure in order to break them. Yeah, that's great. So. Um, start with understanding the constraints, which is sort of analogous to what we've been talking about. Start with understanding the value that your product brings to customers and what, what problem they're trying to solve, and then do the innovation. All right, what's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas? It might be trite at this point, but I would say talking to my customers, listening <laughs> to the market, understanding, and specifically talking to them in, in research mode that tries to unearth the outcomes that customers are trying to achieve and focusing your energy on helping them achieve them. So not necessarily taking the surface level of customer wants a big pink button or hmm. wants you know, a car in a particular color, right? But driving behind that to understand what is it about that set of functionality is gonna help the customer be more successful and then making that your North Star. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And that comes back to outcome, right? Because the big pink button isn't the outcome or the car isn't the outcome. Uh, the outcome's actually a lot different to that. So it might be, um, I don't know, it, uh, the pink button um, <laughs> provides a cash machine or something like that. So that that's the next level. And then what is, well, okay, so let's say you've got a pink button that, that pours out cash. What what are you going to do with the cash, which is the next level outcome? And it may go four or five levels deeper than that. And the same with the car. Yeah, you can take anything to world peace, I think, at a high <laughs> high enough level of abstraction. So yeah. I think that's, that is important. You do need to understand where to draw the line, given <laughs> your right, yeah. overall company mission and vision. But it is a helpful lens that I mentioned before, one of the sort of fathers of the jobs to be done framework, Ted Levitt. He had a very nice quote, says, uh, customers don't want a quarter-inch drill, they want a quarter-inch mm. hole. Yeah. Uh, you, could, you could take that to, well, they're trying to hang a pane, they want to have a nice you know, family room, they want to have a, a beautiful you know, a house where their family can be peaceful, right? You take that up to any level of abstraction, but if you're Bosch or another hardware maker, those other levels of abstraction might not be as useful for you. So you have to understand mm. where to, where to stop right. that train as well. But it does, it does tie back to our earlier conversation about who's the competition. And so if you're a drill bit maker um, and you're saying, well, I just need to make a harder tip or uh, maybe a lighter lighter machine or whatever it might be as, as a way to differentiate myself from the competition, 
the customer doesn't necessarily care about that because they, they just want a hole in the wall or they just want to put a hook on to hang their photos or picture. And so as a result of that, you've got to think about, well, how else could they do that? Because maybe there's you know a self-adhesive hook that, that has sufficient strength so you don't need the hole in the wall and that achieves the same job. So it comes back to the whole jobs to be done philosophy. Yeah, context is incredibly important. Who is the person who's trying to accomplish the job is ultimately less important than the context that the person is operating in at the time. And that really is one of the most helpful things about the jobs to be done theory that it focuses us on what is the context and how can in that context we help customers achieve their outcome better. Hmm. Great. Love it. All right. Now, what's a favorite resource of yours you use most often? You know, as I've gone on my own and have needed to become more adept at creating content and just having uh, more knowledge at my fingertips, I found myself having a love affair with uh, Microsoft OneNote. Before, mm -hmm. I, you know, I've always been a consumer of massive amounts of content, whether that's podcasts or blogs books but being able to consolidate that in one place where i can reference it and, and use mm. it effectively has just been an absolute game changer for me yeah yeah it's, when i first started my business i discovered microsoft OneNote, and i think even today probably it's by far the best product microsoft have it's sort of a standout in terms of functionality and we've talked about jobs to be done in terms of what you've described there, putting everything in this digital notebook and searchable and organizing, and uh, it's it's absolutely amazing. Um, I've stopped using it now because I found something even better, but it is certainly a, a fantastic tool and I used it for many years. All right, what's the best way to keep a client on track? It's gonna sound trite, communication, <laughs> setting clear expectations up front, staying in a regular cadence of contact. And obviously that's gonna be dependent upon the, the scale and length of the project. And for your regular status communications, I like to use several buckets to make sure that I'm communicating what's going on. Highlights, lowlights, insights, risks, blockers where I need help. I think that really is the, communication is the foundation for making sure that things don't get off into the weeds faster than you can address them hmm. yeah i love those buckets idea and and one of the things that uh, i need to keep reminding myself of and i think many people forget this is that nothing happening or no risks or nothing i need right now is also good to communicate hey we're on track everything's under control nothing really to report okay what's the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves I think this goes for either independents or companies, you know, when they're looking at you know, building a product and trying to be successful in the market, pick a lane, stand for something, be world-class in that thing for that set of customers. And you don't necessarily have to be world-class in one thing. You can, if you're partial world-class in three things, you can <laughs> combine those strengths and be the best in the world with a combination of those three things. But this goes back to the segmentation discussion at the beginning. If you're trying to be everything to everyone, 
I would love to be able to do that. I would love for companies to be able to do that, but the world's too complicated. Mm. There's not enough time to meet all those needs. And so pick a lane. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. And, and there's a risk when we first start our business as entrepreneurs, there's a risk that, Hey, we'll, we'll do everything and we'll, learn how to do x and we'll learn how to do y oh i tried i tried that it didn't work (laughs) yeah i'm guilty of that too Um, but at some point you realize that uh, as you say you can't do it all at least not to the level i mean we're all high achievers so we want to be the best at what we do and you can't be the best at everything there are things that i find i just find them challenging and clearly i don't have the the right mindset or the right fundamental skills or the right character traits that that enable me to be the best at that so it's much better that i get somebody else to do that who's world class at that so that the whole effort is world class and i focus on the things i'm really good at and i think that's a lesson that some of us have to learn the hard way yeah and don't let it stop you either right so i think one of the things that i had originally and you I'm sure everyone has something like this where I was like, well, it could be a consultant, but my I'm not very good at slides, right? Whatever reason, just a little thing. But that's almost irrelevant with you know the marketplace platforms like Upwork or, or anything else. Go find someone who's absolutely world-class in that thing. And that's not a concern, right? The client doesn't necessarily care. You designed mm-hmm. every pixel on a, on a slide. So you don't let it stop you from taking that first step either. Yeah, yeah that's right. All right. Well, thanks, Dan. This has been fabulous. Now, where can people find out more about you and about Product Tranquility and maybe even reach out and say thanks for what you've shared? Absolutely. Well, the best two, best two places to find me either on LinkedIn at Dan Balkowski. Always happy to connect with folks there. Also, I blog regularly on my website at producttranquility.com. We talked about the beginning of the conversation. What am I trying to help the world with? One of those things is making this pricing world a little bit less of a black box Mm. and hopefully some of my writing is pulling away some of that that fog for folks all right and we'll post those links in the show notes so people can click straight through now do you have some parting advice for our listener as we wrap this up today i would say align the outcomes of your business with the outcomes of your customers Mm. that's great And, and we've focused a lot on outcomes and understanding outcomes so that's certainly first step, understand the outcomes your customers are trying to achieve, segment them into the different outcomes and then align your own outcomes. Great, I love it. And finally, who else should I bring on this show and why? Oh, this, is a, this is a tough decision. So I would recommend a gentleman named uh, David A. Fields. He is sort of a... Uh, he helps grow, build consulting firms. Uh, he's written some excellent books and every podcast I've listened to him on has been absolutely a fantastic guest. All right. Do you know David personally? Uh, we have talked uh, many times. Okay. Well, I'll get you to introduce us and I'll take the conversation up with him to bring him on the show as well. So thanks for that. And, and thanks so much for sharing your insights and your wisdom around all things pricing and packaging with us today, Dan. I've really appreciated it. It's been uh, really insightful to learn a lot more, particularly about the jobs to be done approach and 
looking at it from a point of what's the outcome the customer wants to achieve, what are the different segmentations and maybe different outcomes or different contexts that customers are in and how does that impact on my pricing and packaging and my offer. So thanks for all of that and all the best for the future and let's keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Appreciate it, Jurgen. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed that insightful and really valuable conversation with Dan and took something away from his episode. I really like Dan's considered approach to pricing and packaging from knowing your customers, the problem you solve for them, and the value you provide. So, following his advice of it's not what you charge, but how you charge and who you charge, that determines your success. As you finish listening to this, take 10 minutes to reflect on who your dream customer is, what outcome you enable them to achieve. Be really specific and write it down, pen on paper. Then write down what value you see that having and what value the customer attributes to that. Be honest and no false humility here either. As you move forward from here, imagine how being really clear about those things will help you shape your pricing and packaging of goods and services going forward. Dan's episode can be found at innovabiz.co forward slash Dan Balkowski. That is D-A-N-B-A-L-C-A-U-S-K-I. All lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash Dan Balkowski. You'll also find contact information there for getting in touch with Dan, as well as links to the Product Tranquility website, his social media pages, and the other resources we spoke about in our conversation today. If you've listened this far into the show, then I have a challenge for you. If you love this conversation and you think it would be useful to at least one other person, be brave enough to share this conversation with that one person. And my guess is that in the 500 plus other episodes that we've published, those magic conversations we've had up until right now, there's at least one there that's equally valuable to you as this episode. So go ahead, either pick your favorite number or take a 30 second glance through those past episodes and between now and the next episode, listen to one more episode and then write me a note on LinkedIn about which episode you picked and why and what your biggest takeaway was. Dan suggested that we have a conversation with David A. Fields, author of The Irresistible Consultant's Guide to Winning Clients on a future InnovaBuzz podcast episode. So David, keep an eye on your inbox for an invitation from us to the InnovaBuzz podcast courtesy of Dan Belkowski. Thanks for listening. We'd love you to leave a review on this episode so that we can get to know you and why you listen. Also, it will help us make the podcast even better for you. Simply go to lovethepodcast.com 
forward slash InnovaBuzz to pick your preferred platform. And you can follow the show by going to followthepodcast.com forward slash InnovaBuzz. If you'd like a peek behind the curtain into how we put together this show, go to innovabuzz.co forward slash flywheel, where you can access a free gift my team and I made for you, a short audio program that walks you through the entire InnovaBuzz flywheel. We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing and your podcast into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. Tune in again to the next episodes of the InnovaBuzz podcast, where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating.